0: Welcome back to the Parasports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Brian Seaman. Brian is a wheelchair racer. He's a three-time Paralympian and he's a glutton for punishment because he does everything from the 100 metres to the marathon. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm very excited to finally get to be on here.
0: <laughs> you've got some great stories so I'm excited to hear a little bit about them but start us off by telling us a bit about your background your impairment and how you got into wheelchair racing yeah so my
1: background is more eventful sometimes than I like to to give myself credit for but <laughs> I am a uh, I'm a three-time U.S. Paralympian in track and field like you mentioned already but my I guess bigger piece of information that's always cool to talk about is that I'm actually a quadruplet. And so when I was born, there were three girls and myself who were all born um, within a minute apart from each other. I am the third of the group. Um everyone mm-hmm. likes to always ask where I came out in, in terms of the, the birthing process. And I was I was the third. And so what's important about that more is that um because there were four of us, we were all we were about two months premature and but even though we were two months premature, we were, we were healthy. And so as healthy as you could be, I guess um, I was the heaviest at two pounds. And so, yeah, I, I was a big boy. And <laughs> so, so we were as healthy as you could be, but that actually leads to my impairment. And so when I was six days old, my doctor left uh, my umbilical catheter open, which caused me to lose a third of the blood of my body um, and caused spinal shock. And I bled out. And so, um, no. yeah. So as a result of that, I became paralyzed, so I'm a T10 paraplegic. Uh, and so even though I'm technically in a, an acquired injury, uh, I've spent my entire life using some kind of mobility device, whether that was leg braces and crutches when I was growing up, and now I'm a full-time wheelchair user. My mm-hmm. foray into sports is is also kind of unique too, and because I was not an athletic kid. I was the very stereotypical kid that liked to play video games and had no interest in sports. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that stems from the fact that I never really saw sporting opportunities available for someone with a disability when I was growing up. I knew that wheelchair basketball mm-hmm. existed, but it was not something that I really was interested in doing. And so mm-hmm. if you don't see that representation and you don't see those, those opportunities, I think subconsciously you sort of just, you block out the idea of competing in sports because you just, why would you think about it? And so I found passion mm-hmm. in other things like video games. And so I didn't actually get started in sports until high school. So on my first day of high school, my then high school track coach came up to me and he asked me if I could walk or if I just had a broken leg, which that's a pretty personal question to ask someone the first time you've ever met them. I've literally never, at that point, I had never Mm. met this man in my life. And so I said, "Oh, oh, I use a wheelchair. And he said, oh, cool. Well, why don't you come out for the track team? And I looked at him kind of like, uh, I just told you I can't walk and you're asking me to do a running sport. And he said, yeah, I know. He said, I- I've seen other kids in wheelchairs at our state meet competing in wheelchairs for their track team. I've never coached a kid in a wheelchair before. Um, if you want to give it a try, uh, we can see what we can do. And I'm a people pleaser at heart. I like to, to think that I'm very, uh, you know, rash and, and, uh, opinionated, but I, I, I don't like confrontation. I don't like anything mm. like that. And so I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Really having no idea what I was <laughs> signing up for. I remember my sisters, my sisters were laughing at me when I went home to say, oh yeah, I joined the track team. So I you know <laughs> told this whole story again and they were laughing again. If you see pictures of me too, I mean, i the fact that I made it this far is just really, it's impressive. I'm going to give myself credit for that. I, I was a little fat kid that had no no bearing and no, 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 like, I should not have been thinking that I could do track. So I said yes, though, thinking, okay, I'll do it for a year and then I'll stop. And mm. sure, so my high school actually raised money for my first racing chair. And so for those of you that mm. don't know, a racing wheelchair costs about $5,000 um, just for the basics. And so that's what we got. We yeah. didn't get like any... Anything fancy like quad or, you know, Karima disc wheels or things like that. It was all very basic, which at the time, I also didn't know how much a a racing chair cost. And so looking back on it, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for how that, you know, kind of completely changed the trajectory of my life and the gamble that they took on this little pudgy kid in a wheelchair to, to join the track team. But, but yeah, so that's kind of how I got started. I worked out with my high school team every single day. I did their workouts, and they also oh. found a junior sports team in northern New Jersey, the Children's Specialized Hospital Lightning Wheels. I practiced with them once a week, and that's where I really learned more of the mechanics and technical elements of wheelchair racing because we had no idea what we were doing with my high school. Mm. <laughs> it was just go out there and push.
0: Yeah, and it's quite te- it is quite is quite technical. It, the placement of where your hands hit the wheel rim and I guess the, the movement pattern on the wheel rim is is actually very technical, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's very technical. And at the time too, I, I mean, we've made so many advancements in terms of going from moldable like aquaplast gloves that you, you molded out of your hand. Now they're 3D printed. But at the time I was using a kind of glove called a harness glove, which was like a mitt basically. And so you it wrapped your entire hand and you had to learn how to like push with it. There were the elements of hitting the compensator at the right time around the turn. I didn't even know what the compensator was the first time. I was just steering, um, which <laughs> any 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 like real athlete knows, like <laughs> exactly. Like I'm, I'm like, why do who does this? Like this isn't fun. It, it, so there were so many parts that I just uh, the parts of wheelchair racing that I needed to learn from someone who actually knew what they were talking about, and that's what that other team provided. Mm. Um, it also provided me with a mm. chance to to for the first time in my life ever meet other disabled kids. I was the only yep. kid in my grade school and high school that had a disability that I knew of, um, that usually had a visible disability, I guess I should say. And mm. so, yeah, so that was an opportunity for me to meet with other teenagers who were, you know, kind of going through the same things that I did, which at the time, again, didn't realize how important that was. But looking back on mm. it, was really nice to have a community of people that understood some of the unique challenges that disability fa- the disability poses in terms of, you know, growing up.
0: And I guess you know you had three sisters and that were the same age as you that were born at the same time as you and and no, none of them have a disability do they
1: No I drew the short straw that day
0: And so did you feel as though the family your family itself didn't really know much like they didn't hadn't known much about disability before you were born Um I I
1: think so I mean what's interesting is that when I look at how I when I grew up in my my family experience it was there was obviously an understanding and acknowledgement that I did things differently. There was never Mm -hmm. anything like that, but I was also treated just like any other member of my family. So I had chores, I had responsibilities. I, you know, I was expected to, you know, clean my bathroom and take care of myself. There was never any sort of, Oh, Brian uses a wheelchair. So he doesn't have to do these things. No, the expectation was very clear. I was, I, used a wheelchair or my my crutches and leg braces to get around. But if something needed to be adapted or modified so that I could do it and participate in terms of the responsibilities that my sisters or my older brother had, I was going mm-hmm. to do it. There was really I – couldn't, I couldn't pull the proverbial wheelchair card. I tried sometimes, <laughs> but I really couldn't.
0: We <laughs> won't let you get away with it. So no. can you tell us what's your classification and what's your favourite of all the events that you race in?
1: So my classification is T53. I'm one of the few mm. that are left in the world. Mm. Um, and so for, for anyone that doesn't understand, a T53 athlete does not have use of their abdominal muscles, much to my chagrin. I really would love a six pack at some point in my life, but I've resigned myself that I'm never getting one. And so, mm. so yes, I'm a T53 athlete and my favorite race, that's a toss up. I've joked with teammates in the past that I say I'm a 400 meter specialist who does other things too. But uh-huh. I think my favorite is pro- probably is the 800. And I think I enjoy that the most because it's a longer distance event where you get to have the tactical elements of, of racing, their strategy involved, but it's also a sprint too. So it's not too long. You know, I love doing marathons for the, I think just the thrill of, of pushing yourself and doing what you can do. But I, by no means, I'm a world-class marathoner. I just, I'm good enough at them. But I think the track is really where my strengths lie. And yep. uh, I think the 800 kind of is that right balance of racing, but also sprinting. And and that's, so I think I'm going to go with the 800.
0: Fair enough. And, you know, in the marathon, you mostly compete against T-54s, isn't that right?
1: Yeah. there There's, you know, a couple of uh, really good T-53 men from Great Britain and Ireland who oh, I love racing against them. They're mm-hmm. oh, It's always nice to kind of have them on the on the field as well and so it's we're a small field but it's yeah but and racing 54s it's sometimes nice too because it's it's an extra challenge to work on some of those elements like cornering and you know climbing and things like that and seeing how you you stack compared to them too so sometimes Mm -hmm. when i'm able to 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 beat some of the the good 54s it makes me feel good about myself it's a nice little confidence boost
0: awesome so can you tell us a bit about what your training looks like? You, I know you're also working and, and juggling a lot of things, but for you now, and, and you're an experienced athlete, what does your typical kind of training week look like when you're not heading into a, a race?
1: Yeah, so the typical training week, honestly, for the most part, at least, let's see, I've been in Illinois now for 14 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of it stayed relatively the same. My coach, Adam Blakeney, has what he calls the master plan. And very rarely do we deviate from that master plan, but it's the structure is uh, we train six days a week and we will typically do two sessions, we'll do we'll push every single one of those days. So Monday through Saturday we'll be on the track or on the road. And two of those days will have some lifting component to it. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of preservation sort of lifts. We'll do some force as well, but a lot of it is on that mobility and, and just sort of keeping your your body healthy and your shoulders, mm-hmm. your arms in in good shape, because so many of our injuries are related to overuse. And so making sure that we can can maintain that level of sort of fitness without overdoing it. And so mm-hmm. so six days a week, uh, we'll do two lifting sessions a week in in there as well in the afternoons. And we train about 50 weeks a year. Fifty weeks out of the year, mm. um, we don't really have like a, an an off season, and I think that that you know we're all, there will be ebbs and flows in terms of, of volume and things like that, depending on competitions and what what's going on with our training structure. But generally, there's not much "quote unquote" off time, which I personally yep. like because if I take more than a couple of days off, I start to to really feel it and my body starts mm. to miss it, and so I I appreciate that we're we're kind of always on the move. Um it just kind of makes yep. me always feel like I'm kind of in shape.
0: Yep. And you've got a a really strong training group. It's, you know, historically been a, a big group in on the whole, like there's a lot of high level athletes as well as the, you know, newbies, the people who are fresh into university. And so you've got a range, but it's a, a quite a strong group and, and can be a bit competitive, especially when you're out on the track doing some track sessions. Do you find that's actually a benefit? It just kind of helps to keep your motivation going.
1: I think if you were to ask me that question, maybe ten years ago, I would have said it was intimidating, and it would have mm-hmm. been—I I wouldn't have had the mental sort of clarity to to know how to deal with that and to to understand that. But now I perceive it as probably one of the biggest strengths of our program. And that we have mm. so many high-level athletes training and competing um, all together. And it gives you every single day you have, you get to look at people you are going to be racing against. And you're going to mm. see how you're performing. And you can you can either internalize it, which is like the bad thing. You can say like, oh my gosh, mm. I had a bad practice today. And this is now... You know this this athlete. You know Aaron Pike beat me today, and you could be you know he destroyed me, and and I, everything's ruined. Or you could say, okay, what you can actually look at it critically and and from a, a a healthy mindset and say, okay, actually, what was I doing today? Maybe how can I improve? And what can what's one or two elements that I can focus on for tomorrow's training session so that I could get better? And mm-hmm. so I think we're always pushing each other. We are always challenging each other, and we get to work on. Specific elements of racing that other athletes don't get because they don't have as large of a field of, of people to train with. And so mm-hmm. I think that it is, it's one of the biggest advantages that our program has, and mm-hmm. it pushes everyone to be better and better. And so it's why no one leaves to be perfectly honest because the training (laughs) environment is just so good no I never thought I was going to be in Illinois for 14 years of my life but here we are now I'm working at the university so um and that's that is because of the the training and there's not
0: and you're not the uh, yeah you're not the only one are you I mean there's how many of them have been there for that long
1: oh my gosh there's so many now uh I, I mean we have probably at least 10 of the athletes that train there are, are former students who just haven't left and now we work in the community somewhere or we've gone on to get graduate-level degrees. And, and that's also, too, not counting the people that finally decided to leave and that's because they retired. It wasn't as if they went to go pursue greener <laughs> training pastures. It's because they decided to retire from sport.
0: Fair enough. And, and Adam himself retired and then came back as a coach, so he's probably the longest termer, isn't he?
1: He is. He jokes, though, too. He says no one ever really leaves Champagne because he, he always uses himself as the example where he says, you know, I've left and I thought I was never coming back and now I've been the coach for 20 years.
0: <laughs> oh, scary thoughts. So to, we'll, we'll move on to talking a little bit about nutrition so currently, how do you kind of put your food in and around your training and your work and, and everything like that so that you support your training as best you can? Like what would a typical day of eating look like for you?
1: So for me, because I, I work full time right after training, I'm fortunate that my job is actually on the other side of our training facility. I work in student affairs. And so I'm able to... and my office is located just down the hall. So I'm very lucky in that regard that I get to train and then I can go work for the rest of the day. But because I, I don't have that luxury of going to a training session and then coming home, having a, you know, being able to cook a full meal or, or you know, that's has everything you need in it and then resting and doing a nice lunch, all that I, I learned very early on that I needed to have a, a regimen of sort of things that I could do. And so for me, there's a lot of repetition or mm-hmm. sort of sh- very similar structure in the way that that I consume food throughout the day because I don't I don't have that ability. So what a lot of the stuff that I do is I I will do meal prepping uh, over the weekend. I'll have some uh, I'll usually then that will be for my lunch mainly. But the way my typical day works mm-hmm. is I wake up every morning about four forty five, and I will have about a small bowl of cereal with a cup of black coffee and then we'll train as soon as I'm done training I'll have some kind of protein shake after that I'll shower get ready and then I will usually have a smoothie that has a bunch of you know fruits vegetables peanut butter seeds everything you can kind of throw in it to give me some energy to get through the day mm-hmm. then a little bit later I'll have one of those I'll have kind of like a, a lunch that I've you know made earlier in the week Typically, it's some kind of chicken or beef with rice, and I've been big on Brussels sprouts recently. But usually, there's maybe some broccoli in there or some some kind of vegetable just to kind of to kind of get me through. About two mm-hmm. three o'clock, I'll have a little snack, maybe a yogurt, and then dinner. I get home from work around five five thirty. I try and keep dinner pretty simple because I go to bed um, jokingly. You know, I, I'm the old man of the team, and I go to bed at like nine o'clock. So <laughs> I don't like to have. I don't like to be spending the rest of my time home cooking and then cleaning and then going right to bed. So it's a pretty simple dinner. It will Mm be chicken or steak with rice or potatoes and like broccoli or something. Again, pretty basic. Mm -hmm. Throw in some seasonings. It gets the job done. You know, it's I I joke that I say I'm not like a a Michelin star chef here, but feeds me. I feel good. I'm satisfied. And and I'll take it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, being a Michelin star chef is, is really time consuming and it, it requires a lot of brain space. So I'm sure with your full-time work and training, you haven't got that brain space anyway. So I think functionality of feeding is is definitely the way to go for an athlete.
1: Yeah. And, and that was something that you honestly helped me learn because I, I when I first met you and started working with you and even through my when I first started racing as well, I I very much was on the, well, if I have a race or whatever, I can't eat that much because I can't, I can't get in my racing chair and have like a full stomach. And so I was very much on the, I just won't eat. And then by the end of the day, though, I was absolutely starving and would just Mm. eat whatever I could. And it was never usually good because I was so hungry that I didn't want to wait. And so I learned through a lot of sort of trial and error and just slowly incorporate like being able to incorporate different things that for me, I know how important now food is in terms of recovery and just making sure I can perform at my best. And so what can I, what can I eat that that satisfies me? And then I can move on to whatever I have to do next.
0: Mm. Yep, absolutely. And you've changed your diet. As you said, you were a bit of a chubby kid and that kind of carried through with you for a a while as you were starting to build into your wheelchair racing. What were some of the big changes that you think you made to your diet that has really helped you become a better athlete?
1: Well, this is going to sound crazy and no one ever believes me. But again, you told me this and I didn't believe you when you first told me, but I actually started to (laughs) eat more. (laughs) And I remember you telling me this and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, I want to lose weight. I don't need to eat more food. And sure enough, I started to eat smaller meals throughout the, the entire course of the day. and I actually thought about what I was eating too. I think that played a role too. But I was eating more, and I was then losing more weight and getting more fit and in performing better. And so um, that's sort of one of the biggest takeaways that, that I've, I've had is that you know eating more actually keeps me more satisfied and more full throughout the day. So I don't find myself overeating. Maybe by the end of mm. the day, or find myself wanting something, you know, at 8 30, nine o'clock at night, and then I just eat something that's terrible for me. And so, so that was mm. sort of one thing. Another thing I think was, again, finding that balance of not only sort of, okay, you know, everyone says, okay, well, you really have to eat protein and, and all of the stuff. And so it's not just eating bland, dry chicken every time, but finding other sources mm. of protein as well, mixing it up a little bit. I think. I, at one point when I was trying to do all of this, I got very much in like a, a chicken and like broccoli and rice sort of mentality because it was easy. I was like, Oh, I can just eat this. And I, I thought to myself, Oh, it doesn't, I could eat this all the time. Like, it's just, it's quick. It's easy. And Oh my God, I don't, there are still, to this day, there are still times I'm like, oh God, I really don't want chicken anymore because I ate mm. so much chicken. So learning how to switch it up too and, and still, and being creative with the the food choices that I was making. So that took a little bit of time to kind of figure out what I liked, what I could make work. And then I also think everything in moderation. I am still a chubby kid at heart. I mean, <laughs> give me a brownie any day. Like I will eat a pan of brownies if it's just sitting there. I, I, I won't, mm-hmm. but like, I want to deep down, my my yep. inner fat kid is like eat the eat the eat the pan, Brian, eat it,
0: and I <laughs> I, I, I
1: won't. But you know you can have a brownie and it will be fine. Um, and so learning yep. had to also not feel that guilt too about what I was eating. Sometimes if I did have have a brownie or had a cookie or ice cream, and just not doing it every or day. Donut. That's the other thing. Yep. Yeah. Mm, yep. Love me a good donut. Um, and so <laughs> so yeah, realizing that. In the grand scheme of things, as long as you're not doing it all of the time and with moderation, Mm. and then also then balancing everything else out that you're eating, it kept that sort of sweet tooth that I had satisfied. But I was also still, I was never felt like I was depriving myself of of anything because Mm. that was, you know, if you do that, you're going to break. Your fat side's always going to win at some point. And then you're going to eat the whole pan of brownies and and you don't Mm. want that. Then you're going to feel real bad. So, so always making sure that you sort of, you can treat yourself. It's okay.
0: Yep, absolutely. As long as it's a treat, which is something Mm -hmm. that's occasional that you enjoy in moderation. Yep, absolutely. Do you do anything in the way of monitoring like yourself? Is that something that's changed a bit over time? Like I think at one point in time, no one seemed to use much in the way of heart rate monitors or, or do much in the way of, you know, actually monitoring their health and their well-being. Has that changed for you as well? Do you kind of, are you more aware of how much sleep you get and, and what sort of tools do you use to make sure that you're checking in on how your body's dealing with the training load?
1: Yes, that's actually, a, it's great you asked that because it's kind of a newer thing that I've started doing recently. I'm actually wearing a ring that does all of mm-hmm. that. It checks your HRV, checks heart rate, sleep, breathing rate, things like that. And so I, for the longest time I hadn't, it was not something that I really thought was necessary because I told myself, well, no, I'm working out consistently. I, I know my routine. I know my schedule. Again, very structured, have it all down. Mm. And then what happened is one of my teammates, Aaron, he, he got one of these rings and he was sort of t- talking to me about it. And just sort of monitoring all of the data that he got from it in terms of, you know, if he's looking at his resting heart rate, he was starting to notice that it it was elevated from what it typically was and that he noticed that he wasn't performing as well as he had been, you know, previously. Mm. And so that was sort of an indicator to him, hey, something's going on. Let's pull back a little bit. And so for me, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I've never kind of thought of those things. We always just sort of think, oh, I'm just having a bad day today. Well, that bad day could turn into a couple bad days or even longer if you don't actually address what what's sort of going on. And so yeah. I got one of these things because I thought, you know what, those are good data to have. And so sometimes we might not even feel that sort of elevated resting heart rate or things like that. And we just have yeah. sort of our feelings. We're just like, oh, that's that was a bad day. But now if you actually have data to support those, those feelings, you can kind of go to your coach or to even just to yourself and sort of make that conscious choice to say, hey, I'm going to pull back even if the effort says I'm supposed to be doing 85%. Maybe that's 85% for when my heart rate isn't elevated or when I had a great night of sleep or whatever is going on. And so, so mm-hmm. for me now, especially as I've gotten older, it's important for me to have those those metrics to look at to inform how I'm going to approach training every day. Otherwise, it's just kind of you go in blind, blind, so to speak. And and I think mm-hmm. that I'm going to say it's, I'm not going to say it's always going to, I'm going to look at it. And if I see something and it says that, oh, maybe you should pull it back today because you did a hard day of activity yesterday and I'm feeling fine. doesn't necessarily mean I want to mm-hmm. listen to it all the time, but yeah. it is helpful for me to know, okay, wait, this is how my body, this is what my body's saying is going on should I maybe make make some adjustments?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so do you feel that that's given you more power in managing your training load rather than just following what's instructed and that that's actually helped you, you know, in terms of your ability to deal with that heavy, particularly in heavy training blocks?
1: Well, I think it would. I haven't actually had to have that conversation yet where I've, it's sort of told me to pull back or anything because I'm pretty healthy. Again, when yeah. you go to sleep at 9 PM, like every single <laughs> night, your body's pretty, like it's set. Um, and you eat the same thing every day, like, and you don't socialize. <laughs> I'm, j- I'm joking about that. But you know, you, when, you, when you have sort of a route, a very regimented routine, it's, it's difficult to sort of break that cycle. So I haven't had to have that conversation yet where I look at those data and say to my coach, you know, Hey, this is look at like, I don't feel great. And this is sort of showing it. Can we pull back? Mm. Uh, We haven't had to have that conversation yet, but I know that that's why I also think it's important just to start using those sorts of um, Mm. metrics sooner rather than later, because it takes a while for it to learn what your body is like, what your your training regimen is like, it's not like you put it on day one and you get all of these data. I've had this now for about three and a half, four months. And mm-hmm. it took about three weeks for it to, to start to notice trends in, in my body. And so you never mm-hmm. want to just start it and then hope to get good data. You want to start yep. sooner rather than later so that as you continue to train, especially as we get closer and closer to major competitions you have those data to, to rely on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also so that you know how that reflects on how you're feeling. Like as you said, you you kind of notice things in yourself and then it's interesting to see what the the actual data says and whether they correlate with each other. So I yeah, I think there's a really important period of just a understanding what that information means for you because that can mean something different for somebody else and it's really just getting a, bit, a a greater depth of knowledge of how your body's responding.
1: Absolutely. I mean data data are data and as athletes who athletes in general I think benefit from that but then an athlete with a disability also there are so few resources out there people who understand sort of how our bodies work because they work differently. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that being able to have as much data as possible when you need to go talk to a physio or you need to go go to a, another doctor as well and have all of these other sort of indicators for them to look at and evaluate as well is really mm-hmm. important. And so yeah. uh, even just outside of of looking in a training environment, overall I think it's just it's it's so beneficial for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Fabulous. So if I was to ask you what you've learned about yourself over the last 14 years of more serious wheelchair racing could you come up with one or two key things that you've learned about yourself
1: I think the one major thing that I've I've learned about myself would be that how important physical health is and how important physical activity is in terms of making sure that you're taking care of yourself and that I used to sort of think that you know the couple of miles that i did in my racing chair was enough all day and then i could do whatever i wanted i didn't mm-hmm. look at it from a the, the bigger picture of overall health and well-being and so as i've gotten older and you know i've been fortunate enough to compete at the the highest level of sport and don't get me wrong i love that that part mm-hmm. of of my sporting experience but where i'm at now and where i hope to be after i eventually retire from sport which who knows when that's going to be cuz i just love living in champagne so much <laughs> that that but i think that it's you know looking at health and wellness as something that goes beyond just sport and and competition but making those those lifestyle choices that will then make the rest of your life better mm-hmm. i think that's something that i've learned that it's it's so important and to to really focus on the bigger picture, sports is a part of that picture, but it's not the only part of the picture. It's just one little piece of it. And so, looking at how I can incorporate overall health and well-being and the choices that I make with food and working out after I, I you know, I'm done with sports, that's sort of my mindset set has really shifted on that, and that's where I, I really put a lot of my my time and effort in making sure that I can have a healthy lifestyle, um, and and just a overall happy life after I'm done competing professionally.
0: Mm, terrific. And part of that happy life has to include some Disney, doesn't it?
1: Uh, always. It's, if <laughs> I don't have a trip to Disney planned, then I'm just really upset. So, you know, at least once, twice a year, you got to go. You, and I'm actually going in a couple of weeks. So I'm very excited.
0: <laughs> what is it about Disney that you love so much?
1: You know, people ask me that all of the time. And I think that there is a misconception that it's just (laughs) like for little kids. But I think that there is, there's something about, one, as a vacation spot in general. The parks are great. Don't get me wrong. I love the parks. But overall, it's a very nice sort of, like the hotels are gorgeous. They have beautiful pools. The theme parks are, are, of course, they're fun too. They're crowded, but they're fun. They have good food. Mm -hmm. If you know where to eat, like, again, I'm not going to like the, the little kiosk on the side and getting chicken nuggets we're going to mm. like the nice dining places i do have standards um <laughs> but but i think the other thing too that i think is sort of sometimes people don't think about is is that disney's actually very accessible and so as someone with a disability mm. it's really nice for me to be able to go on a vac- to a vacation spot with my family where we all enjoy and i get to see my nieces have have you know fun Interacting with their favorite characters. And there's never really a moment, too, where I have to worry about getting around because it's all accessible. And so I get to participate in those activities with them. Mm. It's not as if we went to, you know, Colorado and they get to go, they're going to go do some activity that, like, I can't really do. And I get kind of can sit back and then hear about it later. And so for me, that's, I think, part of it. That's mm. the more philosophical of the answers. Again, I love the rides, too, but I think that. There's there's something about being able to fully participate in sort of all of the the different activities and things that they have with my family that's exciting. For instance, and just this is a very long tangent about Disney World, but you know, a couple years ago, my sisters all got certified in scuba diving. I've been a certified scuba diver since 2006, and so they got certified in scuba diving with their now husbands and fiance, and we all went scuba diving in Disney together which was something oh, right. that was, you know, yeah. That, and so they have things like that. So we went in the giant Epcot ball thing. We went scuba diving in there. So it was really cool. Um, and so so things like that, like, you know, you don't get to necessarily do those things at other places. And so it's uh, it was really cool. It's a magical place, as they say.
0: <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, so Brian, what recommendations would you have for young potential para-athletes who haven't really found their sport yet or are maybe starting to get into track and field?
1: I think if you're a young para-athlete, I think you should try as many sports as you can Mm -hmm. because there are so many different sports out there. Again, I didn't know that they existed and I lucked out that Mm -hmm. my coach found found track and that happened to be the one sport that i was good at but anyone that knows me knows that i'm the least coordinated and most unathletic individual in the entire world and if he asked me to play wheelchair basketball i would not be on this podcast right now we would this wouldn't be happening i can guarantee you that right now steve serio would have looked at me and just been like really no so like so so try as many sports as you can because you're not even if it's something that you necessarily are like i don't know if i'm going to be good at that give it a try, give it time too.
0: Mm.
1: One of the most difficult sort of elements of, of para-athletics is the fact that oftentimes you're in somebody else's equipment or you're in equipment that doesn't really fit you. And and, and that's one of the, the hardest parts about, about using any kind of adaptive equipment is that it's not yours or it's mm. not made for you yet, or they're going to make it bigger because you're going to grow into it because you're, you're a teenager. And and that can be frustrating. You're going to get in a race, you could get in a racing chair that's so big. There are there are some sports that, that lend themselves more to, you know, using the chair you're in, or you don't need to use any kind of equipment at all, like swimming, but being patient with the process. So if you think you like something, keep keep at it. Um, yep. You know, it took me, it took me, God, four or five, like ugh, close to 10 years of training with in high school and then training with. The professionals at University of Illinois before I made my first national team before I made my first mm-hmm. World Championship team and that was through I mean I made some really tough changes in terms of like my diet and everything because it was something that was important to me when I got after my first year of college first year of college was rough lots of tackle <laughs> um, so so but yeah so but I made that choice so I think if you're younger give it time be patient with it and try everything that you can because there are so many many different sports out there don't think that there you know. There's only one for you because, you know, you're going to try it out. You get to meet other people, try different things. And a lot of other opportunities open up that way too.
0: Super. And what about two coaches? Like your your high school track coach was willing to go out on a limb and raise some money for you, having never coached a para-athlete or an athlete with a disability before, get a a chair for you. He obviously started from understanding track, but not understanding disability and and how to integrate it. What recommendations do you have for up and coming coaches or coaches who've never coached someone with a, a disability before?
1: You know, I think for any coach out there, I think one, for starters, being open to the idea that a disabled athlete could participate on your team. Um, like I said, there are so many different sports out there that are adapted for individuals with disabilities that don't assume that it's not possible. Hmm. I, I think the other thing that's that's really kind of what was unique about my situation and was truly how easy it was for me to get involved. There was never any pushback. I was allowed to race alongside runners. I, I was not hmm. isolated into my own separate events. I was able to run alongside my teammates because my coach felt like it was important. I trained with the team. I was a part of the team. I was not separate from the team because I had a disability. Mm-hmm. And so that mentality sort of he he alone really kind of helped shape the minds of the other coaches in the area. Mm-hmm. You know, to this day, there are still high school age students who are suing their school districts just to be able to participate on their high school sports team which mm-hmm. I think is absolutely absurd. It's, you know, I was in high school in 2004. Yep. Yeah. That's almost 20 years ago. And and so I think that for as much progress and awareness has been made about adaptive sports and and how to safely and effectively include disabled students in sports, there's still a lot of pushback. And so mm-hmm. being open to the idea I think is really important and also realizing that if you athlete with a disability on your team that might encourage other coaches or other schools to pursue the 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 students with disabilities at their school as well to get involved as well. Mm. I, I use my school my experience as an example because because of my the positive experience that I had at my high school there was another student who's now currently training at the U.S. Paralympic Training Center in Chula Vista who purposely chose to go to my high school because he was a wheelchair racer and knew that he was going to be able to, to participate. And that was something that was really important to him. And so you look at just how that my experience and because of what my coach did, you know, not only did it change my life, it changed this other kid's life too. Mm, and so yeah. you can't say, oh, well, we just don't have any athletes. Well, maybe you don't have any athletes because they don't know that, that the opportunity exists. Yeah, And so- it's been done. You can do it, and now we have to get kids involved. And so, yep. being open to that idea is is really important.
0: Amazing, yep, fantastic. Well, Brian, I know it's time for you to go and get some well deserved rest and and some food and prepare yourself for an early night of sleep. So, I am going to let you go, but you never get away without the last question, which is, what's your favorite food?
1: Oh, man. Do I say the good answer (laughs) or the bad answer?
0: Um, Give me the true answer.
1: Okay. Well, right now – So, okay. My favorite food probably like – God, this is going to sound so terrible. My favorite food is Taco Bell. I love cheap, (laughs) not good for you Mexican food. Taco Bell. Specifically Taco Bell. It's not like, oh, getting like street tacos or something. No, it's Taco Bell. That's like probably Mm. my favorite, but I don't eat it anymore or very rarely. And so, I think my favorite food right now, na- like in general, I'd always go for would be like a really good steak. I've been mm-hmm. been big on like on ribeyes recently, and and now that it's nice out, like grilling, so good yep. ribeye, always good.
0: Mm. Do you like it rare or medium or how well done do you like your steak?
1: Oh, I yeah. want it basically like still mooing when you're when you're eating it. So. <laughs>
0: Yep. Fairly bloody. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Brian. It's been fantastic catching up with you and hearing about your story. I even learned a couple of things along the way. And we wish you all the best. I know you've got uh, some big competitions and, and looking forward to potentially Paris next year. So all the best. And we'll hopefully catch up with you another time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Brian had a lot of great messages in that podcast and I particularly like the fact that he is now using a monitoring system to look at his own body's responses to his training and other factors to help him understand when to pull back or at least how to best really manage his training effectively to optimise his performance potential. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback or any people you'd like to hear from, please leave a message on our website. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Keely Shaw, who is a Canadian paracyclist and researcher.